Good morning, Church at the Red Door. Is this your first time back? You snowbirds, raise your hand. First time back. Welcome back. It's good to see everybody. Uh, saw the Vander Martins, hadn't seen them in a while. So good to have you too, Dennis, Carol, and and understand you're back for the season. I was just got all kinds of folks. I don't want to. I picked out two. I should. I could pick out a, a lot of folks. So forgive me for that. But I just was surprised to see them and see smiles on their faces. So um, anyway, you ready for today? We are going to roll. I got a, a little bit of news for you if you if you're interested. Um, well, something happened on Jefferson, so maybe we can pull something up. Well, there you go. <clears throat> if, you haven't, if you haven't driven by it, you ought to, and uh, I don't know, go put a flower up there or something, or a big yes, I vote yes, or whatever. So anyway, we were allowed to do that, so thanks to Bill and Brett, and I don't know who else helped put it up, maybe Anthony or Zach, I think, did the, did the work on the sign, but it uh, looks good, doesn't it? looks good. All right, let me open in prayer, and we're going to rock and roll. We've got, uh, we've got to keep it a little tight in this theater. That's why we're kind of down to two worship songs, forgive us, but we're trying to work with what we've got post-COVID. So it's a thrill to be with you. Lord Jesus, be with us today. Uh, we, we are totally, completely uh, dependent upon your spirit. I say this every week. I pray it every week because it's true. Lord, people are going to hear different things this morning. They're going to see different things. People are in different places in their journey. Some maybe haven't even started a journey with you, and this is in some ways provocative to them. And, and for others, it's, you know, they've been walking with you for many years. Lord, I pray that you would somehow speak to each one of us right where we are through your word, the immutable word. It's powerful. And Jesus, in many ways, the word, the Bible says simply that you are the word. So we pray that we would understand you, your ways, and the plans that you have for the world, and even more specifically, us as a community, and even more specific to that, us as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to press on in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Laura and I, as you may know, were in Fresno this last week with the Hermans and, and the Jacobuses were there. And, and you can pray for Marty. Poor Marty got home and, well, it didn't, he had a fall last night. So be praying for him. He's in the hospital this morning. So I want to send him a text if you know Marty. Uh, he told me not to tell anybody. So I didn't, only a few close friends, you know. But I'm just saying, look, that's part of a community. Everybody knows. I'm sorry. Everybody's going to find out eventually. So... Sorry about that, Marty, but uh, we were in Fresno doing the memorial service uh, for my good friend who you, many of you have now seen and saw his last, uh, the video that he did that's been seen thousands and thousands of times. If you haven't seen it, you ought to go to it and see it. Uh, it was a man on his last, uh, last few months on the earth. And actually, at the, at the moment he did that, it was about a month. It wasn't much more than a month. And it was the last time he really had his voice. And then he just started to decline. And we've been battling cancer for five years. And it was extraordinary. And I just want to tell you, some of you watched it. Uh, we live streamed it while, while it was there. And the family did an extraordinary job. Just an amazing legacy that he left. And uh, it was, uh, boy, it, it, I, we had dinner after, a few couples had dinner after the memorial before we drove back the next day that night and everybody can say, I kind of feel bad about myself. You know, his life was so prolific and his kids were so honoring and uh, it was just amazing. And uh, it was a hard thing to kind of live up to. And he was a ministry friend and partner for 20 years. It was, it was amazing. So it was both celebration of his life and celebration of where he is now and, and tears for the family and th those he left behind, including myself and close friends and colleagues. 
So, um, but in Fresno, and this comes to where we are this morning, in Fresno, my, my wife needs a little coffee, and she's not here, so I can talk about her co- coffee habit and um, her need of coffee. And so Starbucks, we stopped at a Starbucks, and we were there, and I looked up and saw this sign uh, right outside, and I just didn't quite permanent makeup. I didn't really understand what that was. And then it said, specialist, eternity and beyond. And that's the makeup that lasts, ladies. I don't know about that, but eternity and beyond. So even eternity is set in our minds, even, I guess, as it relates to our makeup. And uh, I just thought that was uh, profound. I said, wow. And I don't even know what's beyond eternity, but it must be something extraordinary. But I thought eternity was kind of the, that was it. But I guess there's a beyond eternity. This really lasts. This really lasts, this makeup. But it's our, it's our obsession with eternity. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. It's in our DNA. Many will say, well, you know, eternity. I mean, that is just, we've evolved to a place of consciousness. And now there's a, there's a, a realization unlike the animal kingdom that we will someday perish. We don't like dealing with that. So human beings have been making up mythological stories for, you know, thousands of years to try to, to try to comfort themselves in the reality that there is actually nothing. That's a materialistic worldview and one that is dominating our culture today. I don't care if you go that way. Many, in fact, will say it's courageous to actually admit that we're going nowhere, that we mean nothing, and that we are merely a product of blind chance. Now, they have many questions to answer, don't they? And we talk about that all the time. It requires a first cause because they're believing, in my view, in a fairy tale that something can come out of nothing. And you can even actually get back to the very, very, very beginning, even prior to the Big Bang or whatever thing you may ascribe to, and there are still the physical laws. You still have to account for why are there physical laws versus nothing. Physical laws would be required as a precedent to even begin something in the beginning. So, look, everybody believes in some ways in a myth or a fairy tale or something outside the natural, something preternatural must be. We just fill in those blanks with someone that we know, something that makes sense of all of eternity. And that is not only God, but as, as Jesus began to talk about his father, that began to make a lot of sense and it fills in a lot of the blanks. We need to understand that Jesus put eternality on man, put it in our very DNA. You are a soul. Buddhism doesn't believe that we are a soul. Hinduism does. Buddhism does not. You are a living, breathing person now, but you are also a soul housed in a body. And as we can see from my friend Jeff, very temporarily. So we are here but a very short time. Why are people so fascinated with the eternal? Because God set it in our hearts. He put it in our hearts. I'm fascinated too. We are in a theater as we try to recover from the COVID and move back into a little bit more of a normative uh, program. And I actually like it here. It kind of feels good. And again, as I've told many of you, if 50% of you are awake by the end, by the once your legs go up and all that, I feel like those are the metrics by which a good sermon has been preached, <coughs> including my wife. So, 
I'm fascinated with the current movies because I, I, I am becoming an old man. I'm the old man. I, I fight the tendency to go out and, you know, get out of my yard and all the kind of old man habits that we have and everything, you know. <laughs> Laura and I go out and say, okay, let's just not, because we just see things that we think shouldn't be that way. And I guess that's just part, I guess when you're young, you don't really notice it. But when you get older, you just start seeing more and more that it shouldn't be that way. And it seems to me that movies are now all about superheroes. I mean, just constantly. In fact, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to, and I'm just like, is there anything that's not Marvel comics or DC comics or some kind of franchise? And I said, I wonder what the, the, these franchises, I wonder what the top movie grossing things are in the history of the planet. And obviously ticket sales are more, et cetera. And you know, there's more population. It's more worldwide, et cetera. But listen to these staggering numbers. At the top of the chart by over double is in fact Marvel Cinematic Universe which is all the Marvel movies that you see just constantly and perpetually one after another. The one that's about to come out, I don't know if it has, I think it's imminent, is called The Eternals. Find that interesting. Mar can you just take a guess, hazard a guess at what Marvel has made? 22.93 billion, billion with a B, dollars. Star Wars was 10 billion, the multiple franchisee. Harry Potter, 9.2. Avengers, 7.7. .7. And then on down, Spider-Man, James Bond. Got slipped in there, you a little bit older folks. Now you have a favorite James Bond, one or the other, but nevertheless, Fast and Furious, X-Men, again, Batman, again, Lord of the Rings. Things dealing with the eternal and with superpowers. Superhuman, supernatural well, powers and forces and something, tell me something there's beyond. I, I've always been fascinated with that as well. And then at the 13th was even transformers, machines that take on an eternal nature and a powerful nature and a, a, just a, a greatly insightful thing. We need superheroes. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9. All that clearly, and nobody's even arguing the point, those are myths and fabrications. Last week we looked at this encounter that they had at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? It's a question we all must answer. And whether or not you realize you've answered it or not, you have answered it. You've answered it by your life. Not just your theology and your premise, you're answering it every day with your life. You're answering the question, who do men say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? That's the question. Not just who do other people say, it really comes down to one thing, who do you say that I am? And I told you in the midst of this, this week, I'm going to give you a little nudge in the direction of, well, helping you along your journey in determining who, in fact, Jesus not only was but who Jesus is. And that's the next story. Uh, three different accounts give the story and the question at Caesarea Philippi and then it are immediately followed by something we call the transfiguration. What happened at the transfiguration? Well, it, there's, first of all, there's debate as to which mountain it was. It doesn't specify in the text which mountain it was. I tend to be in the camp that suggests it was Mount Hermon, which is um, just in the very northern part of Israel. It's up just beyond the Golan Heights. It as, rises to about 9,000 feet. Uh, people don't realize the Middle East. They've got pine trees and the snow is year-round. And it, these headwaters come down and they actually feed the Jordan. And then the Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee. 
eventually, and, and then flows out again and flows all the way down to the Dead Sea. And so this is kind of what happens. It flows from Mount Hermon. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 133 said, the dew of Mount Hermon, it's like the unity of brothers, like oil flowing down the beard. And he likened it to this beautiful picture of the dew and, and oil and unity. And when we can come together and we can all be unified as one, it's, well, he gave the, he gave the picture of Mount Hermon and the dew. And it is very dewy. And then it flows down. And believe it or not, and the reason... I choose Mount Hermon over Mount Tabor. Some believe it was Mount Tabor or multifaceted. There was a huge wall around Mount Tabor, which, by the way, was southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Mount Hermon, uh, Caesarea Philippi, where they would have been right prior to this. And we don't know exactly the time frame, but it was just on the southwest base of Mount Hermon, which now actually divides Lebanon and Syria. And again, are the very northern portions of the Israeli border, even today. Well, there was, a, there was a wall around Mount Tabor. They would have had a hard time ascending during the time of Jesus. I think Josephus, the historian, told us that. But even more importantly, off Mount Hermon come very cold waters. And in those cold waters are trout. And I love to fly fish. So I think it's Mount Hermon. I really do. And uh, I believed always it's Mount Hermon. So, so Mount Hermon, you can imagine, they ha- he asks the question and then he takes, now get this, he only takes three, Peter, James, and John, the sons of thunder, James and John, you know, these two who are such a mess in many ways, they, they're called the sons of thunder. Why? Probably because they had an attitude and probably because they had, you know, struggled a little with anger. I don't know exactly what the purpose was. At one point they wanted, as they were traveling through Samaria, they wanted to call down fire from heaven like Elijah and wipe out the whole city. Uh, I mean, why would Jesus do that? Well, he was in the process of doing one thing very important, and that was discipling an inner core. He had the three that were really on the inside. He took them up alone, not all 12 disciples. And then he had the 12, and then we know about the 70, and, and those are all very important numbers, and we'll see that. So let's read Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Some eight days before these sayings. By the way, Matthew and Mark mentioned six days. Just depends on, I think, how you count it. And he says some eight days, around eight days. Some could count the day and then the day or six days in between. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it actually gives confirmation to me that these were authentic things because they didn't get together and do a conspiracy and say, but two accounts give six days between and, and, and here Luke gives eight days, probably just the way they counted it. And he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face, now catch this, this is right out of Marvel, Marvel, the Marvel world. The appearance of his face became different. <clears throat> Transformers, Right. And his clothing became white and gleaming. I don't think his clothing actually changed. I think it was just the light that was flowing out of him and through his clothing gave the appearance. I don't know that for sure, but I would speculate. And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah. These are resurrected people. These are people, Moses had died over 1,200 years prior to this. And Elijah was back during the time of the prophets. I mean, this is, you know, over 500 years prior. And they were there talking. Can you imagine this? This is in your Bible. This is not some Marvel comic. Who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, his ascension. So we'll add not only this glowing transformation, this glorified body, but he's about to ascend back into the heavens and they're having this conversation. 
Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Ah, you know, there we are as human beings, right? Right? We, we have God before us in all of his glory. We have the opportunity to be born again and be filled with the spirit and have a personal encounter with the living God. And where are we? We're typically either literally asleep or, or at least spiritually many of us just are asleep. It's just a perfect picture of all of humanity. But when they were fully awake, and the reason they're doing this is because they wanted to be very clear. We were there. We were pinching ourselves too. This was not a dream we had. This is not some mass hypnosis. No. When we were fully awake, they saw his glory. Now, Matthew says that he was transfigured, actually uses the word there, transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. Try to picture that. And his garments became white as light. And then Mark mentions that no launderer on earth could come up with anything more white than this. <laughs> Pretty powerful. And the two men standing with him, and as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, <laughs> Peter, oh, I love Peter. Because I, ha I have so much of the inclination Peter have in me. I have an encounter and I say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to do. And I've learned the longer I walk with him. But just hold, that, hold up, big fella. Whoa, big fella. Why don't you listen to what I'm telling you to do? But new believers in their enthusiasm began to tell you all the things they're going to do for the Lord. And that's okay. It's a good, it's motivated properly. But he gets rebuked. But here's what he says. Master, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week in the three tabernacles. But master, it is good for us to be here. You, in other words, you pick the right guys. Yeah, we're the ones in the know. I mean, it's good that you pick. I'm not so sure about these two, but at least me. Right, it's good. It's good for us to be here. Uh, let us make three. Now, I notice the moment. I mean, it'd be like when Batman or some superhero reveals themselves and, and he says, okay, now we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. Just be quiet. Uh, the, the superhero has emerged. Now, this isn't a fake thing. This is the reality. This is Jesus through whom all creation was made. It's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, number one, that was, a, that was a really chaotic mistake because the very purpose of them being here and for them to kind of disappear and then Jesus to be standing with them is that Jesus is now taking precedence over, as we'll see in a minute, the law and the prophets. Moses represent, representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. Jesus is superior to everything that you've understood. He's a fulfillment of what you've been hearing for years, but he's he takes precedent over it. And of course, Peter's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this. And why? I think he wanted this mountaintop experience to last forever. He probably never wanted to come down from the mountain. And he just felt like he needed to do something for God. And I love the next portion. It says, he said these things, we're going to build a tabernacle, not realizing what he was saying. He just didn't understand yet. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid. And Matthew adds that they, they fell on their faces. As they entered the cloud, then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. What does God say about Jesus? Who does God say Jesus is? This is my son, my chosen one. Peter, quiet down, big fellow. Listen 
to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and, and they kept silent. You know, both Matthew and Mark let us know that Jesus told them not to tell anyone until he'd been raised from the dead and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Now, first of all, it's important that we understand Jesus is doing this very intentionally. If we go back to Exodus chapter 24, Moses too ascended Mount Sinai. Moses was a prefiguring type of Jesus. Jesus was the new Moses. In what way? He would ascend Mount Sinai. Some believe he ascended, there were probably eight different ascents if you put it all together starting in Exodus 19 through Exodus 24. Moses would have gone up and down the mountain probably at least seven times and maybe eight times. And then on the sixth time, this Exodus chapter 24 occurs. And let me read it for you, Exodus 24, 1 through 3. And, and he said to Moses, God, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. So there's an ascending of a mountain, and then there's a, there's a, there's a transference of glory, first through the law, even Moses shined, right? You remember when he came down, they had to put a veil over him because he was shining, being in the presence of God. And, and you shall worship at a distance. And Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Why? Because you couldn't, no man could see the face of God and live, Exodus 33 tells us. No man could see the face of God and live, but Moses could. He was a prefiguring of someone who could be in the presence of God. Un, not unlike Jesus. So Jesus is being very intentional. Please understand. And remember the choosing of the three and there was also the 70 and yet the three couldn't come all the way. I find that very interesting. Exodus 24, it was only Moses. But now in the presence of Jesus, the three could come near the overshadowing. Remember Moses too was overshadowed here on the Mount of Transfiguration, whichever Mount it was, they were overshadowed. Do you get this? There is a very specific pattern through which Jesus is trying to communicate something to his disciples that they will clearly not understand until quite a few years later under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit when in fact God would overshadow everyone. Did you know you can be overshadowed by God through the power of the Holy Spirit? And then verse three, and Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord after having now descended and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. They just pronounced a curse on themselves because no way were they going to be able to keep the law. So Moses descends as a representative type of the law and everybody's going to fail, even though they said, whatever it says we're going to do, right? Jesus descends with the message of the kingdom and the message of transformation through the spirit, the gospel message, his resurrection on their behalf, his dying in their place so all the people could live. That's why at the preaching of what? The gospel, 3,000 came alive. And when the law was given, 3,000 people died. It's a very different covenant we're working with here. So what you have to understand is, again, Moses, a representative type of the law, and Elijah, a representative type of the prophet. Now you have a new law in town. It's called the new covenant, the new deal, if you will, under Jesus. He's inaugurating. So Moses is not taking out like he doesn't matter anymore. It's very important that we understand who Moses is, but he is being supplanted by the very thing that he was, his shadow was predicting. It was being supplanted by Jesus. 
Jesus replaced, if you will, Moses had served his purpose as a representative type of the law. Elijah, the same thing, because Deuteronomy 18 had prophesied that there would be a new prophet. And Jesus is claiming, whether you understand it or not, he's claiming to be that prophet. And he was very clear about that, as is the New Testament. It's all, what does all that mean? It's all about Jesus now. You don't have to worry about all the ins and the outs and everything else. I think one of the things that bothers me the most is that people get so confused by religion in general. I'm not just talking about world religions. I'm talking about even within the constructs of Christianity, we can make it so complicated. It is so simple. You'll take a lifetime to understand it and you never will, but it's so simple in the beginning. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Not the law, the prophets, and everything. Believe what they said was coming and that Jesus was the fulfillment of it, but that's the point. Now I want to ask you some quick questions before we close this morning. I want to ask you why Peter, this is the question I was asking this last week. Why Peter, James, and John? Why did he choose them? I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, Peter would have been the oldest of the disciples. John would have been the youngest. John certainly younger than his brother, James the Greater. There were two James that were disciples. James, the brother of Jesus, was not even a disciple. But there were James, the son of Alphaeus, and there was James the greater. That doesn't mean he was greater. It just in the, in the Greek there, it, uh, it just means that he was probably either older or taller. James the greater. So uh, I can just tell you that why them? Well, first of all, it's kind of bookends. They had the oldest and the youngest up there. Well, there's some other reasons that I want to talk to you about as well and some reasons why I speculate, why I speculate that he chose them. That was his inner core. Like I said, you just can't have deep, deep personal relationships. Jesus knew it. Three and a half year period of time with a thousand people. He needed to transfer what he was talking about to dependable people that he was going to fill with his spirit to then take it out and then it would just multiply and multiply and multiply. But those first three were very important. He was discipling them through this process. Well, in fact, they needed a mountaintop experience. They really needed to see Jesus in this form, not just through his teaching, even through his miracles, his superpowers. They needed to see more. They needed to see this moment. Why do I think that was important? Well, first of all, if you go back to the letter of Peter, Second uh, Peter, Peter's making the case. He's getting to this long, he's saying, look, you guys are partakers of the divine nature. He goes on to say that this is sufficient for you. He, he's, he is going down this path of revelatory wisdom that they will be absolutely, uh, was absolutely necessary for the early church to understand why Peter, why Peter? Because he was going to be conveying such deep, powerful truths for all of eternity. And even Peter put this experience at the top of his list. Listen to 2 Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. This is not about Marvel Comics or Jurassic Park or the Eternals or any of these other things. This is not an elaborate, fanciful thing. Listen to what he says. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't just see a, a carpenter's son. Walking around in sandals for three and a half years that called us out of fishing and into following his unique teaching. We've seen his majesty and 
And what did he say? He said, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by, to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What's he talking about? He's talking about his mountaintop experience. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So, listen to what he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Peter was there because Peter needed to see this with his own two eyes. Do you have any friends that have traveled, maybe that you're really close to, you share similar tastes and you really trust what they say and they've gone on a trip somewhere, maybe to Europe or somewhere, or maybe, you know, to a nice resort somewhere and they come back and they give you a tale and you go, I don't believe that. I'd have to see it with my own two eyes. I mean, we just, we, we go on what people say all the time. The other nine were radically impacted by what Peter, James, and John claimed that they saw. Obviously they weren't there, but they trusted the report of these three. There's no doubt in my mind. We have them prophetic word made more sure to which you do all, all do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In other words, you need spiritual transformation. And I'm telling you, we were there. Did they put their money where their mouths were? What about James? Why was James included? Because in 44 CE, AD, whatever you want to say, he was the first martyr of the apostles. About a decade he spent following Jesus. Not, well, three years prior, but then still following Jesus into some very precarious places. I believe that James may not Maybe he would have been, I don't know, but I, I think Jesus took him up there somehow through prayer. He knew, he had, a, he had an understanding that James was gonna be the first to give his life, not just for what he believed, but for what he had also seen. I haven't seen Jesus. I've seen him in people. I've experienced him in such profound ways. I've spent decades in the Old Testament confirming in my own with my own intellectual curiosity that he was the Messiah had to be the Messiah based on what had been written for 1500 years but they saw it they saw a superhero well beyond a superhero and they truly did marvel now that's something worth marveling about. Marvel comics, all right. If you marvel at that, it's pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, the Eternals and all, but they truly marveled. What about John? Why was it important for John? Well, James would be the first, we got two more bookends. James would be the first to give his life. John would live the longest. So of all the apostles, he had the beginning and the end. Now, John sacrificed extraordinarily so. In fact, we know for a fact that he, well, he lived out his last years on the island of Patmos, right? And he wrote the Revelation and he wrote, well, he wrote the Gospel of John. And listen to what he says in the Gospel of John. You don't think he remembered what he had seen on Mount Hermon, fly fisherman? 
Listen to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was first cause. He wasn't just caused. He was first cause. All things came, came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, can I just, I mean, I've bragged about people before. Oh, man, can he's pure. He can hit it a long way. Oh, boy, I, she is so sweet. I love her. She's the most servant-hearted, glorious, gracious person. But I've never said anything about anybody like that. Not this is a review. This is a real, this is a Yelp review that cannot quit. This is two thumbs up. This is all the stuff. I mean, everything that was created was created through him. In verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. How did he know he was the light? Is this using language? He saw him glorified on the mountain. And the darkness didn't comprehend it. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Verse 9, I skipped a few verses there. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The Jewish people at large, not all the Jewish people. Obviously, I say that very importantly. The Jews didn't reject Jesus. We wouldn't have a New Testament. We wouldn't have 20,000 Jews embrace Jesus. It's approximated during that first wave called the way. But as a nation, they rejected him, but many are coming to faith today in your lifetime. And we're involved in that as well. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as for as many received him, to him he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelled among men. Was it important for John to be on that mountain? I say yes. How can you write those kinds of words? He could have under the inspiration of the spirit. But I'm just telling you, for whatever reason, Jesus needed him to be there. He needed John to see this. Nobody, in my view, writes like John writes Paul comes close. Don't get me wrong. Colossians 1 and 2 are profound, amazing. But John writes in a way, well, that is evident. It's evident that he'd seen not only his resurrection and his ascension, but he'd seen him being glorified. Didn't need sound effects. Didn't need a crew. Didn't need special lighting, didn't need special cinematography. It was real. So I want to real quickly look at this. You remember the part about the encounter that said a cloud formed and began to overshadow them? I went back and researched. I'd never really done that before. The word overshadow in the Greek, episkiazo, remember that, which figuratively means to invest with preternatural, supernatural, just outside the natural influence. Let me say that again. To overshadow in the Greek, that word means to invest with preternatural influence. Something happened when they were overshadowed. Not ultimately, not like the coming of the Spirit, but God enveloped them. There was something really powerful. They encountered the living 
God. They were overshadowed. I'm going to ask you, have you ever been overshadowed? Have you had a mountaintop experience? Next week, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what a mountaintop experience I believe is and what a mountaintop experience is not. It's important for you, however, to have a mountaintop experience. Can you think of anybody in the Bible that's had a mountaintop experience other than these three? I can guarantee you I can, whether they were on a mountain or not. Let's go back to kind of the beginning. Abraham had many mountaintop experiences and encounters with God. He left his own people and went to a land that he didn't know where he was going. And he had various encounters and he would go years and years and years and then another encounter. And it would redirect his entire life. Jacob had a very significant encounter with, well, with the angel of the Lord. And he wrestled with him and his hip was moved out of its socket and he then became Israel. Joseph had a powerful dream, an encounter with God through a dream that changed the course of his life. If you think Christianity is just a bunch of little theories or even worse, just a bunch of rules and regulations to ruin your life or whatever, you just don't understand the, the real true journey with Jesus. Yeah, it's, it costs, it's, it involves persecution. It involves, but let me tell you something, it's glorious. It's the only thing that really will bring definition to your life outside of the world that we live in, which is grasp, people grasping for meaning through materialism or fame or whatever. I mean, give me a break. Elijah had some amazing encounters with God in the cleft of the rock. Peter, James, and John, we just looked at it. The apostle Paul, the road to Damascus. What happened there was kind of like a transfiguration in sorts, but he just appeared, but he didn't appear and then transfigured. He came transfigured. A light shone and he heard a voice. Why are you persecuting me? Paul's life would never be the same. He would go from the hunter to the hunted with zero regrets in prison for two years, two years. I prayed, you know, 45 minutes ago, and I have not gotten an answer. Where is God? Two years after his mountaintop experience. What carried him through those two years of imprisonment? I guarantee you that encounter on the road to Damascus. And I'll even say this morning, and again, I'm not patting myself on the back, but even this manifestation of this gathering, that sign on that piece of property, all the different things. I could have never seen that, but it started with an encounter I had decades ago before anything had happened in any way. Before my very first facilitation of a small Bible study of all places at McDonald's. But I had an encounter with God, a mountaintop experience. I can give you the date, the hour, and the time. And I've had, and let me tell you something. They don't come frequently for me. I encounter God in worship and in study and all those kinds of, but I'm talking about those moments that will define a life and a destiny at whatever age. Don't look back and go, well, it's too late for me. Trust me, your life can be radically transformed in its direction through an encounter with God. But don't be trying to chase it. It's something where God finds you and you encounter him, but you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Some of you may have had potential God encounters and you just couldn't see it or hear it because you didn't want to. Those are hard words to say and not very gracious words coming from someone who loves you as your pastor, but it's true. Do you want that? 
So next week we're going to explore, first of all, what did, what did these three tabernacles even mean? What, what, what was, why would Peter do that? But then I even more specifically want to talk about a mountaintop experience for you. I don't want this to just be a history lesson for you. No way. I want this to be a moment in your life where you begin to understand and be able to define that God wants to engage you. Let me say that again. Well, there's pastors and there's full-time people and evangelists and all kinds. You know, I'm just trying to live my life and have a good retirement or have a nice place here in Palm Springs, you know, and I like to do a little service. I'm telling you, that will not sustain you. Just a feeling of obligation will not sustain you. I'm not here because I just feel obligated. I feel called. Where did that calling come from? A mountain top experience. I've, cha I've challenged not, not as many women, mostly men, because I deal more often with men and have for decades. They get in a crisis and I say, you need to get away. You need to go to a hotel. You need to turn in the remote control. You need to take worship with you, more music with you. You need to take a Bible and you need to wait until God speaks to you before you make a decision on this. And normally they go, click. And sometimes they call back and they go, all right, I'll do it. Why? Because I want them to engage Jesus, to see him in his glory. And when they do, it doesn't matter what he tells you to do, you'll do it. Don't just live your Christian life out of obligation, please. You'll sap the life out of your spouse, your kids, your friends. Live it to the glory of God because you cannot wait to get up and see where Jesus will take you on your journey next.